0: This is Too Many Lawyers on Royal Oaks. And on Connor Oaks. So, Connor, we've got a couple of topics on the agenda today. Uh, minimum wage laws. Uh, is it time to shift the burden of the minimum wage from employers? to taxpayers. Mm, Great idea. Seems to be all the rage to uh, boost up that minimum wage around the country, so uh, I thought we'd look at it from a libertarian standpoint. We also want to talk about uh, something that is seen as kind of legal inside baseball, but it's really a fascinating topic, the issue of national injunctions, whether a single federal judge, whether it's Northern California or Southern Texas or New York, Southern District of New York. Whether one judge has the power to issue an injunction that will have nationwide effect, even though in general, a single trial court judge only controls... That person's case, and in order for a, a decision to be binding, you'd have to have an appellate decision that would govern an entire, for example, circuit court like the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out at West or the Second Circuit back uh, back in uh, the on the East Coast. We also uh, we'll get into the issue of drug legalization. Mexico seems to be leading the way, actually joining Oregon uh, when it comes to drug legalization. So let's kick it off with the minimum wage issue. You know, the the minimum wage has actually gotten into the news a fair amount lately, uh, partly because of Florida, and actually a, a bunch of other states are focusing on it as well. Over the next six years, Florida's minimum wage is going to bump up gradually to 15 bucks an hour uh, on, on November 3rd at the uh, on, during the election. Over 60 percent. Of Floridians approved Amendment Two, which bumped up the minimum wage and amended Florida's constitution. The current rate is about eight dollars fifty cents. It's going to go to ten bucks an hour in September two thousand twenty-one, and then it's going to creep up to fifteen bucks an hour to in uh, two thousand twenty-six. And I mean, really, a lot of states are getting on the bandwagon. Over half of the U.S. states have approved minimum wage increases since two thousand fourteen, but. The jump to fifteen bucks is seen as kind of a steep one. Uh, the federal wage floor is now sitting at seven dollars and twenty-five cents. And by an you say, when we say now,
1: we mean since what? The seventies?
0: Well, since two thousand nine, it, sure. it, w- it was increased uh, in two thousand
1: nine to seven dollars twenty. But it hasn't kept up with inflation Correct. the way that it ha- was constantly adjusted for cost of living as as inflation rose since the sixties or seventies. So while we do get national minimum wage bumps uh, every once in a while, and I think this may have been the uh, 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 only one in a long while that we got recently, um, it's no longer really considered a uh, uh, an actual uh, floor, right? It's, it's no longer actually right. a living wage. It's more of like a national guideline for then states to make their decisions about what their state minimum wages are. And it actually came up during the presidential campaign, the Biden
0: campaign, to raise the federal minimum to fifteen dollars an hour. But a narrowly divided Congress uh, has cast doubt on his prospects there. So we'll see what happens in Georgia. Of course, Uh, supporters of the minimum wage hike say it would help eliminate poverty among the working poor. It would narrow income inequality. Uh, The job market, through uh, last month, recovered twelve million of the twenty-two million uh, million jobs lost in March and April when. The pandemic hit uh, so hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, Job losses uh, were among the most severe in hospitality and food service. And a lot of economists say that they are vulnerable to being eliminated a lot of these jobs if minimum wages
1: rise. And a lot of times these minimum wages are only in different parts of the country because the economy is constantly shifting and the labor market is constantly moving geographically and as different sectors rise and fall. But minimum wages really come into play when the economy is bad, when the labor market is bad for labor, when labor is struggling, when there are not enough jobs and the, the demand of, of labor, uh, demand for labor is low and the supply of labor is high, that's when minimum wages uh, laws become relevant. And you could say there's no more apt situation to talk about uh, a minimum wage law than in a global pandemic, because uh, as businesses all shut down, people lose their jobs, suddenly uh, right. the market is flush with people looking for for work, especially desirable, i.e. non-dangerous uh, work that doesn't involve a lot of contact with other people. So
0: now we come to the crunch and the novel question we wanted to address. The crunch is that if you listen to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, they concluded last year before the pandemic that raising the national minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour would do two things. First, it would cost 1.3 million Americans their jobs and second, it would lift the same number of people out of poverty. Mm-hmm. So, a good thing, a bad thing. Right. So, here's my question. We know that to some degree, bumping up the minimum wage causes some employers to go under the waves. They will go out of business, they will file bankruptcy. How many, you know, to what degree, nobody knows for sure. The statisticians and the economists can debate, yep. but but it's an issue. Another right. problem is it causes some layoffs. Yeah. You've got a higher cost. You've got to pay people more. You're going to lay some folks off and it discourages hiring. So here's the possible solution to bankruptcies, layoffs, not hiring people. Instead of forcing businesses that may be right on the the cusp of of financial devastation, especially in a pandemic situation, instead of forcing companies, employers, businesses, the job creators that maybe took a lot of risks uh, to, to make money for themselves, but also create jobs, instead of forcing these people to pay, the difference between the market rate and a minimum wage, Why not have all of us share the burden? Why not simply say, all right, U.S. taxpayers, we know you love the idea of lifting people out of poverty. We know you love the idea of getting rid of uh, income inequality. So you, the taxpayers, with a progressive tax where the rich folks pay more and the poor folks pay a lot less, you will pay Jim... His $15 an hour, well, at least the difference between, let's say the market would say he is worth $12 an hour. That's what he could get on the open market. So the 3 bucks between the $12, which is his market wage, and the $15 that the government say says has to be paid to him, why not have the taxpayers pay it instead of the poor, downtrodden, nearly bankrupt employers? Poor,
1: downtrodden uh, job creators. The poor, downtrodden owners. Emmett's of Emmett's electric the shop in Mayberry. Yeah, exactly. Like Floyd's barber shop. I'm gonna I, I have to get rid of one of his chairs. I think I think you're absolutely right that the government needs to take a more active role than the very hands-off refuse to raise the minimum wage. Process that they've taken, and there are lots of people like Andrew Yang who brought it to the forefront of our national conversation with a a universal basic income proposal that he basically founded his entire presidential campaign on, knowing he was very unlikely to win, but that it would be an issue that would suddenly become part of the national political conversation. I think he did a great job with that, and I think he's probably going to end up maybe with a cabinet position as a result of it, or if not, then maybe just a position in the DNC uh, at some some point where he gets to sculpt that. Narrative and have that topic be uh, a piece of the conversation. Overall, though, the idea of a government um, covering the difference uh, between the air quotes market rate and um, uh, whatever we decide the legal minimum is. Makes the libertarian uh, uh, run for the hills. The idea um, that we got, we have government stepping in to hand out money to corporations—it's um, basically the 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 ultimate embodiment of uh, socialism for the rich, uh, rugged free market capitalism for the poor. That is this this neoliberal idea that well, as long as uh, the government hands out trillions of dollars uh, to the people who already have trillions of dollars. Uh, Uh, Then the economy will keep chugging along and the stock market will keep going up and everybody else will be fine. They'll just survive the idea that we would be discussing uh, how to hand out more money to the people who have gotten the the beneficiaries of Trump and McConnell's massive tax cuts for billionaires uh, and Instead of paying people to stay home during COVID, so that we don't all die, that I think makes the I hear uh, the, what you're saying about a libertarian and reaction, and maybe John Stossel and
0: Milton Friedman, right. uh, up in heaven, would but, object to this idea. John's alive, John. But, by the way, John's alive. Oh Milton's yeah, yeah. In, that, yeah that's why heaven. I paused yeah, yeah, yeah. slightly. John's very much alive. <laughs> Poor John. But I mean, when you think about it. Uh, this kind of debate it would focus on the fact that the market system uh, would provide a certain number, and the government is providing an artificial different number. Right. It would be a recognition right. yeah. of what happens when you mess with the market system, yeah. the bankruptcy, the layoffs, the hiring. I mean, think about it. A quart of milk costs about a dollar 70 cents. Sure. That's the market price. Right. George W. Bush, you know do, that off the top of your head. Very impressive. Do, uh, look it up. Looked it up on four different sites. Oh, good, good, that's good. the average. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the market price. Yeah. Do we say to Ralph's, Oh, that's not enough for you. Ralph's. If consumers want a quart of milk, they've got to pay you $2 we don't say that. Instead, you know, if the employer, and so my question is, why wouldn't we apply that rule to employment? Why do we say to the employee, oh, $10 an hour, that's not enough. If the employer wants an hour of your time, they've got to pay $15. Yeah. I mean, in America, our laws reflect compassion. If people need help, we give it to them. Yeah. We have a debate over the what the safety net should look like. Right. We don't like the idea of giving everybody so much that everybody has an equal amount of everything. Yeah, but however large or small the holes are in the safety net, shouldn't taxpayers pay the, pay the foot this bill instead of employers who are risking their financial the minimum, success
1: the by creating wage, jobs? The minimum wage is already a safety net with massive holes in it. In order to benefit from a, a minimum wage of any kind, you have to be able to work. What about all the people who have disabilities or who are disabled in one way or another that doesn't make them what we would call you know, eligible for disability benefits from the government, but also don't or can't hold down uh, regular jobs for any number of uh, uh, many, many reasons? And, it, and all of the roadblocks and obstacles that get thrown up in the way of people receiving the benefits of our social safety nets, the minimum wage is a very conservative market-based system where we say, you've got to go out there and work incredibly hard your entire life, and all you're going to get out of your job here is the complete inability to save money for retirement, and uh, when you turn 60 years old, you're going to have to stop working, and whatever your nest egg is, that's what you got to live with. I mean, the the minimum wage is not a generous giveaway, right? This is not a a, a socialist program. This is a very basic system. You You could actually provide for people in this country if you wanted. You could actually give people a universal basic income. You could actually give them free health care. You could actually give them free housing. You could actually guarantee that they have enough money to eat food and put food on their table. A the minimum wage just says, you exist. You have costs of living. We recognize that you have, exist and have costs of living. Uh, we're not going to give you anything. But if you work your butt off, you should at least have enough money to put a roof over your head and gas in your tank and food about, in your stomach.
0: What about people who make 80 grand a year? Should we say to them, you know what? We've looked at the cost of living. We know what you've you've become accustomed to in terms of your lifestyle. We really think that you should get $95,000 $95,000 a year. Should mm-hmm. we give that extra check for
1: $15,000 I mean, to the eighty dollars folks? I don't believe that that's a very uh, important uh, hole to throw money into. I think there are more important holes to throw money into, people that make a lot less than $80,000 a year. sixty like up to $75,000? I can see how you can say, well, it there, there seems like there are people who are undervalued at every position in life. But you're right. That the, There's a reason we cover the bottom of the totem pole first, where we say, This person desperately needs our help because they can't handle the basics. They can't handle rent and food and child care so that they can go out and keep earning that minimum wage while their kid, uh, you know, doesn't get raised by their uh, parents at home. Like, we we, we 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 cover the stuff that it absolutely is mandatory with a minimum wage, and you're right. Capitalism vastly undervalues the labor of many many people along the way, and the the excess value there, as 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 Marx would would call it, is captured by the person who owns the means of production, who owns the company or or whatever uh, we're talking about, whoever the employer is, and who skims uh, the 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 extra value generated by the labor of the employee and turns it into profit. And the problem with well one of the uh, problems with an idea that the corporate welfare type protects the uh, the poor, innocent, downtrodden employers who have to pay a minimum wage to their employees in order to keep their doors open. Um, part of the problem with that is how do you determine that $12 market rate for Joe Schmo, who's out there doing his job? How much is he worth? Well. Right now, he's getting $12 an hour in this one tiny geographic slice uh, area. We already have geographically localized by state and often then county minimum wages. Uh, We could somehow piggyback off of those, but they quickly would get out of date. And we would really end up deciding... Um, how much profit these employers are allowed to take if we uh, uh, end up you know, with a, a program where we say, well, we'll pay the difference between the 12 and the 15. Why is it 12 there? The employer would have to open its books and say, well, okay, we're going to, Uh, We we, we take uh, our margins are X, and we take this much in profit, and our executives get this big a bonus, and our managers make this big a bonus, and this is how much we put into corporate reinvestment, and this is how much our expenses are, and whether we're underwater or on purpose underwater in order to reinvest money, blah, 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 all these business reasons why wages are what they are. The point of a a minimum wage is it's just a line. You just say, this is the line. you got to pay it. And if you can't pay people a minimum wage to do your job, your company can't exist, Because your company shouldn't exist. You can't pay people. You can't pay your employees enough to put food on their table. Then you're obviously not fit to be a company. Like go build a different company that makes a different kind of mousetrap that makes enough profit so you can pay people a living wage. I'll I'll say this, Connor. I
0: I disagree with you on issues like market system and capitalism and and, and, uh, Marxist economics. (laughs) But I think what you should do is make sure that that your message gets through to the Biden administration because there's going to be another election in two years. And Mm -hmm. I think they need to make sure that they maintain the focus on these issues because Mm -hmm. the Republicans...
1: Nobody disagrees with nobody disagrees with the idea that Karl Marx says that labor creates a certain amount of value and the employer captures that excess value and creates efficiencies by their method of organization of labor and. Aggregation of labor to create, you know, a very efficient assembly line that makes a product, and then they take home the profit. Everybody recognizes and knows that. It's just that Marx and others said, "Well, that is wrong." There's a moral component to it. We should not be taking the labor value of people, taking it away from them, and capturing it for ourselves just because we happen to have the millions needed to start I'll the company. Say, I'll in the say beginning. this:
0: uh, uh, Karl Marx was my least favorite Marx brother. <laughs> that that's all. I'm Groucho's say on mustache that. was far superior. Uh, we we are going to pause and then turn to national and junctions, but Connor is going to tell you how to
1: rate and subscribe please, to this check, podcast. Yes, please check in on your app, whatever app it is you're using, SoundCloud or Stitcher or Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever else you're using and find a way to rate and subscribe uh, to us and make sure if you, this is the first time you're listening, make sure you get all our episodes um, and make sure that you're uh, you know sharing the podcast with your friends if you like it. Uh, it really uh, would help us out. We really appreciate it. We want to um, blast into more ears so that you have people to talk about Uh, The show with. That's very important. So my favorite thing is telling people about podcasts I just (laughs) listened to. Uh, Let me tell you about the mating habits of dolphins. I just listened to five hours about that and I just need to share with the world. I didn't. That would be more interesting than the podcast I'm currently listening to. We'll be right back. This is Too Many Lawyers.
0: This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm still kind Oaks. So National Injunctions, uh, it's... Um, Very inside baseball. Yeah. It is inside baseball. So let's kind of set the stage. Uh, the, the legal system, let's just talk about the federal system. It's kind of like a pyramid. Up at the top, you got the Supreme Court. And whatever they say goes. Uh, they control the entire nation. They issue a, a precedent, and everybody has to follow it, whether they like it or not. Everybody. Under them are the Circuit Courts of Appeal. Uh, you have a dozen or so of them around the country. The Ninth Circuit's very high profile, being California, and, and historically in recent decades kind of left of center. Although uh, Trump made uh, so many inroads there, it's uh, I think it's, uh, it's almost even in terms of Republican and Democrat appointees in the Ninth Circuit. But the point is, the circuit courts issue decisions, and whatever they say goes within their circuit. Right. So the Ninth Circuit issues a decision, and everybody in the Western United States has to follow it because they're the boss. Second Circuit is... Is a decision back east, everybody in the Second Circuit has to follow it because they're the boss. But the Ninth Circuit judges and justices, or judges, that is, do not have to follow the Second Circuit. So now we go to the third layer level in the federal uh, judicial system, and that's the trial courts, the U.S. district courts for Central District of California in Los Angeles and Northern District of California up in San Francisco and and other parts of, of California. So when a trial court judge issues a decision, that decision governs the case before him. Just the, the people in the room. Just the people in the room, the Trial parties, of lowest the plaintiff level. and the defendant. Right. Uh, however, there's an exception to that, and that's this concept of national injunctions. Uh, one district court judge may say nationally, here is a rule, for example, a, a federal agency is before the judge, right. and, and the federal agency is, is being challenged. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, in, in recent years, Uh, One district court judge said that employers may not refuse to pay for birth control under the company's health plan. Because, you know, that was a really big controversial deal about Obamacare. Obamacare says everybody gets free care. But uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor and other Catholic groups said, no, wait a minute. We're employers, too. We don't believe in birth control. We don't want to pay for birth control. So a judge said employers may not refuse to pay for birth control. They've got to do it. And that... That injunction, that order applied nationally, and people said, well, is that is that okay? Yeah. Well, so far, the U.S. Supreme Court has not struck it down. Another example, Trump said, um, you know, I, I, I want to deport the Dreamers, right. the kids who were, who were brought here by their parents. Deferred uh, action for childhood arrivals, DACA. R- DACA, right. So Trump said, uh, you know, I, I, I want to deport them a national injunction was issued by a single federal judge saying, sorry, President Trump, nobody who works for you, no agency around the country may deport these these dreamers. Now, at the Supreme Court level, Clarence
1: Thomas has raised questions about the legality yeah, of President in Trump versus Hawaii when he said uh, the Muslim ban—that is, a ban on people entering from a bunch of predominantly Muslim countries—was ra- uh, motivated potentially by uh, anti-Muslim animus. I'm not sure. Uh, and uh, Clarence Thomas uh, stuck in that opinion. Uh, saying, well, you know, it's a, it's a real question whether uh, national injunctions are, are, are a big problem. It doesn't seem like they'd have the constitution constitutional basis. And in contrast to that, Justice
0: Ginsburg, in the birth control case that we were talking about, she said, well, there's no abuse of discretion in issuing a national injunction. But there hasn't really been a dispositive resolution of, of the legality of this. Yeah. It's going to come up, though, it this is. term. The it Supreme is. Court is going to hear it. Uh, Justice Conner, if you were on the high court... How- How would you uh, sink your teeth
1: into this issue? It's really complicated. I am uh, theoretically, big picture, I'm in favor of national injunctions um, by judges uh, at a a level lower than the Supreme Court. Um, I don't know how low that should go uh, and how many layers, because there are different types of, you know, different courts with different numbers of layers and all the rest. It's hard to get into the specifics. But big picture, the idea that the Supreme Court at the top has the power to decide, say, Generic things like the constitutionality of a law, as we decided back in Marbury versus Madison, Supreme Court decides constitutionality. They just decided that for themselves, by the way, it's not in the Constitution or anything. They just said that's what we do because the Constitution didn't say what the courts did. Um, And so they, it makes sense that if the constitution, uh, the, uh, the constitutionality of laws is determined at the apex, the very top of the pyramid by the Supreme Court, that the cases that funnel the, uh, themselves on the way up through the federal district courts uh, on the way to that would also have to then decide constitutionality, which they do as they make their own decisions, knowing that, they, that their decisions will be reviewed or chosen not to be reviewed uh, by the Supreme Court. They're making those same types of decisions because that's theoretically when you're going up the chain and taking your appeals, you're you're getting courts with the same powers uh, all the way up the chain. If you if you uh, if you weren't if you were instead getting uh, going through courts at the lower levels that didn't have the power to decide the issue in front of you, then instead of our normal system that we currently have, where they say have a holding, then you say hey I want you to overturn that holding, we'd instead should be able to skip out the line on these district courts and totally invalidate them. Yeah, and go but what do you do Supreme if court? two
0: district court judges, one in that's New York, one in California, totally right. disagree on the exact same that's issue with h-
1: different parties? That's a huge problem. Is that you might have the Sixth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit totally disagree on something, or they, or, or the district. Sorry. Or or the, the district, district courts, right. right, and they they uh, issue a, a national injunctions that are dueling. And the current solution to that that everybody would you know fall back and say, well, it's Aaron about- Burr and Alexander Hamilton, that's the solution. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to worry about that situation because it'll just go to the Supreme Court, and they will break the tie. They will decide what the real outcome should be. But that doesn't solve the problem in the meantime, in the short term. Plus, they don't have time to break all ties. They can't break all ties. They take a tiny little percentage of the amount of cases, uh, and and that's a serious problem is that these courts, uh, they have national power to flex and go beyond uh, their circuits. But the circuits aren't just – it it doesn't make sense for us to have – to have uh, uh, geographic barriers that determine, like, we had to have basically mini-Supreme Courts, uh, not just for, like, state Supreme Courts, but then we have federal mini-Supreme Courts for groups of states that fall into the circuits. We then would have, if you wanted to go that way, we could go that way, and it wouldn't be the worst idea in the world to say that they operate differently, but then you really have to start thinking about how these federal circuit uh, uh, lines are drawn and whether there's some cohesive, meaningful reason behind why they are drawn. And that gets us into the whole other idea of, well, wait, why are these divisions that we draw geographic barriers around, why do they matter anyway? Is it really California a meaningful legal distinction? And should the judges in California have their uh, sort of uh, their jurisdiction bounded by the the lines. That well, were drawn I've got an really idea. I mean, if, if
0: Biden and the Democrats are going to add two states, and if they're going to get rid of the filibuster and make the Supreme Court thirteen, why not just get rid of all the lines too? Yeah, just to baby, know, let's l- do l- it. Lump One big it together. State. Now, here is the problem: there is a political component <laughs> yeah. here. The Republicans, you
1: a political, but the whole thing is politics.
0: That's true. The Republicans were uh, against the national injunctions when uh, judges thwarted Trump's plans. Right regarding right. DAC and so on. But now, maybe the GOP would like to be able to thwart some Biden regulatory changes. Yep. I mean, the court has issued about three times uh, as many nationwide injunctions against the Trump administration in just four years as the courts did throughout all eight years of the Obama administration. I mean, and the argument is that a court should have the power to enter a nationwide injunction against a federal agency's action when it is categorically unlawful in all circumstances. Right. Now, you'd argue, you know, people could argue whether that's the, the truth, but that's sort of the rationale. Mm-hmm. If some, if an agency is doing something that's really, really bad, then a single judge should be allowed to stop it. And, of course, that judge is always subject to being overruled by right. the circuit court. Well,
1: we really but, are depending on these judges at, at a relatively low level, I mean, relatively the lowest level, right, of federal courts uh, to decide that, uh, say... <sighs> that ExxonMobil is dumping oil into the ocean off the coast of Louisiana. Yeah, just to make up a hypothetical Mm -hmm. uh, scenario. Oh, sorry, BP. It's not Exxon. It's BP is dumping oil into the ocean off the coast of of Texas and and Louisiana. That the court the judge would say, I'm going to issue a national injunction saying that uh, you know that that Exxon or BP can't do X, Y, or Z in this specific place in this specific s- set of circumstances. But there are these are multinational companies, right? They're operating in every state in the U.S. They do different things in every state in the U.S. Sometimes they have pumping uh, and, and drilling. Sometimes they have pipelines. Sometimes they have off the coast uh, oil shipping. Uh, sometimes they have none of the above. Sometimes they have refineries. So there's so much going on in different contexts that you were. Really Relying on that district court judge to say, I'm going to issue an injunction that only applies universally in this context or only or uh, applies non-universally specifically in this other context. And you really have to trust that that judge is going to get it right. And guess what? Judges are human beings. They make mistakes. They're political animals. It, it's oh, like we can recognize that they're human. They're not just referees. They're not just umpires that call balls and strikes. They can't possibly be. They are Obama there are Obama judges and Trump judges. It's a real thing. And we can't depend on them for everything. Well, and maybe there have to be more and better checks and balances on their power than hoping that the Supreme Court overturns it when the Supreme Court is, is honchoed by a Trump supermajority now. I, I, yes, that's where
0: I'm coming at. See, I don't know how they're going to resolve this, but... I- I just have confidence that at least five of the members of the Supreme Court will get it right in this next term when they decide whether national injunctions are appropriate or not. When, When we come back, drug legalization. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm still Conor Rums. So drug legalization, uh, front and center on the national agenda, but also international maybe, because Mexico, of all countries, seems to be leading the way when it comes to drug legalization. There was an interesting New York Times article uh, very recently about what's going on there uh, uh, in Mexico. Uh, it was authored by uh, a fellow named Ilan Griot, and he's covered the, the drug war in Mexico for the last 15 years, and he said uh, in that time, Mexico suffered more than 270,000 homicides, many at the hands of cartel gunmen or security forces fighting them. But now he says there's an opportunity to forge a new path here uh, That now that Oregon has sort of led the way of becoming the first state to criminalize small amounts of hard drugs, yeah. decriminalize uh, small amounts
1: of hard drugs, including heroin, cocaine, and crystal meth. And I believe weed was already legal. So at this point, there are no restrictions in that it is, it's, sorry, no criminal restrictions on the possession of any uh, illegal
0: substances. And so Mexico is poised to create a very highly populated legal marijuana zone. There was a uh, Mexican Supreme Court ruling last year that cannabis prohibition is unconstitutional. The Senate there in Mexico is working on a deadline now to pass a legalization bill. So I I guess the question is now that uh, the Biden administration is taking over. And of course, uh, Attorney General Barr is out. Attorney General Sessions is out, who definitely tried to, uh, to reverse the trend toward legalization. Right. I mean, if you look at the United States, uh, 15 states with one third of the U.S. population have chosen to legalize adult use of marijuana. Do you think the Biden administration is going to have the guts to say, you know, we know it's not going to be real popular in some rural heartland areas, but let's look at the handwriting on the wall. The drug war has failed. Think of, of the of the untold billions of lost resources, an untold number of lives ruined, yeah. rotting in prison. Do you think they're going to have the guts to step up to the plate I and, think and they move absolutely. the needle on legalization? Yeah,
1: I actually think this is the place where I expect the most movement from the Biden administration in the progressive direction, because it is two birds with one stone, and it is ahead of the curve uh, uh, in terms of public, uh, uh, public acceptance. So one, it's two birds with one stone because— the Biden administration wants to make progressive moves and visibly, like, pay off the progressives that won them the election, and 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 reward the people who 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 gave them their support and their blessing and put them in office right so they want to support uh, uh, and reward the people who care uh, about the black lives matter movement who ca- they want to care uh, re- reward the people who were uh, marching in the streets uh, to show that the american population was not united behind trump's you know uh, uh, message uh, of, of law enforcement is king, and law enforcement should only police themselves. But it's really hard to change law enforcement in this country because law enforcement is done by cops at the state level. But national decriminalization of, uh, of drugs— uh, is a really good way. And 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 going out and saying we're ending the war on drugs is a really good way. Or at least as to marijuana, because it is sure. still classified yeah. as a Schedule I drug, Insane. like heroin, yeah. at the federal level,
0: meaning it has no medicinal right. value. And and the, it is highly addictive. The, and it is classification is just a
1: relic of the war oh yeah, on drugs. For sure. I mean it's a relic of a William Randolph Hearst trying to destroy the hemp industry in order to 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 benefit his competing uh, plants that he was growing, which didn't happen to be used Usable. Now hemp is not even usable as as a marijuana that you can smoke, but it didn't matter. He just used this, you know, the machinery of his is a uh, newspaper empire to vilify hemp and thus marijuana, or marijuana and thus hemp, in order to gain an advantage in the marketplace. You're probably a big Citizen Kane fan, aren't oh, you? Huge, That's yeah. exactly. Yeah, and that is, like you said, a relic of that. It, it, that classification is a relic of that historical period, and the, the racism uh, and and uh, that it continued forward from that. It was it was a great excuse to to to. Incorporate Incarcerate people uh, and and blame them for their economic situations uh, and 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 thus punish people uh, for not succeeding in a system that's stacked uh, against them where they're set up to fail. This is a, a terrible situation, a terrible system that has ended in now this horrible mass incarceration problem that we're all suffering through in America today. And that, like I said, I think this is the best way to to sort of uh, to kill two birds with one stone here. Sorry, Peta and you know, make progress on the end the war on drugs thing and make progress on the mass incarceration problem at the same time. That's a win-win. There's no way Biden doesn't try to make that his premier uh, legacy of his uh, first term is I made progress on the drug war and on mass incarceration.
0: You don't think his people are going to be whispering in his ear, Mr. President, you know, um, yeah, you won. uh, It was 51 to 47 against the Orange Menace, a Mm -hmm. guy nobody liked, and the Republicans did surprisingly well up and down the ballot other than... You know, uh, we're not sure how good the economy is going to be in four years. You don't think that Biden would worry about ticking off some real Americans uh, that might hold it against him, that he turned the whole uh, country into an opium den?
1: No, I don't think so, because I, I don't think that that real Americans— uh, uh, I think I said real Americans. Oh, sorry, real Americans is a meaningful thing. I think that uh, America will shortly be majority-minority. I think that people really do have an understanding of the mass incarceration problem that we have, and they understand that, as we saw from 2020s, racial justice—like, we saw— massive street protests in the middle of a pandemic uh, that, that reflect a massive changing of the, of sentiment when, like I said, this is, I think, ahead of the curve to be able to go out and say, we want to end the war on drugs and and change the way we do law enforcement. It's going to be in stark contrast to the defund the police ideas, but it's going to basically be the same exact outcome, a rethinking of the way that we do incarceration and punishment in this country and why and It's so easy. It's so easy to just legalize weed. It's so easy to go the way of Portugal and now Mexico and Oregon and everywhere else, which have suffered basically no consequences and at all big positive benefits uh, to go that direction there that middle America is ready for legalized drugs. It absolutely is in the same way that middle America was ready for gay marriage, even though we we changed from, you know, uh, Proposition eight in California backed by big money, uh, uh, religious interests, that was against gay marriage. And then, boom, in Ober... I've never pronounced the name correctly, but the Supreme Court decision that legalized gay marriage, Oberfelger... I'm so- Close I'm, enough. I'm sorry, I'm butchering your name. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, it, it happened overnight, and the government was ahead of the curve, behind public opinion, but ahead of the curve of like, well, will middle America survive it? And guess what? Yeah, they did great. They survived it just fine. And they kept were dragged kicking and screaming. Screaming into the future.
0: You know, it's funny. You mentioned the, the protests, and I was so happy to learn that the 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 street protests, all the outrage and, and the looting and so on. It was it was actually okay. It was healthy, and it was not uh, risky in terms all of the, the pandemic. Looting, yeah. I, I learned all yeah, of that all because. What happened was my Fox channel was broken one week, yeah, so yeah, I was yeah. forced to mm-hmm. listen to CNN, right. and that's what I, Whereas the Trump rallies right. were horribly, Horrible, yes.
1: wh- horribly unhealthy. Well, because so. they actually weren't socially distanced, and no one was no, wearing masks, they were, and they're they screaming about together. COVID is a hoax. Uh, it, they were very unsafe. Whereas street protests, where you're distant and wear masks, uh, are all actually much safer than being inside, generally, absolutely. I'm not sure they were all dis- socially distanced in the indoor street. Indoor Trump, Trump rallies. I mean, there, there really is no comparison. You look at the COVID numbers after the street protests, there were no spikes uh, that people were so deathly afraid of. You know what's going to cause spikes? Thanksgiving. People being indoors, because indoors yeah. is the big difference.
0: 14 days after Thanksgiving is going to be gosh, a very be scary so time. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening to Too Many Lawyers. We'll see you next time. Have a great week.